Well, there was a man who loved mysteries, and there was a new murder mystery that was showing at the local theater, so he was excited when it came out, and he bought tickets, but the best seat he could get was near the back, and he was afraid that he was going to miss some of the clues, and so he called an usher over, and he said to the the usher, if you can find me a better seat, there's a big tip in it for you. Now, the usher was excited about the prospect of a, a large tip, so he went to the Box office checked and found out on the second row there was a prime seat that was not going to be used. And so he came back and he told the man, come with me, and he ushers him all the way to the front to this prime seat in the second row, and both men smile as the patron sat down and reached into his pocket to get out the tip. And as he hands the usher a dollar bill, the um, smile disappears from the usher's face as he looked at this dismal tip. Now, soon the smile disappeared from the other man's face as well as the usher leaned in and whispered in his ear, the cook kills the guy in the pantry with a candlestick. (laughs) It kind of ruins a mystery for you, doesn't it, if you know how it turns out. And as we look in our Bible today at Ephesians chapter 3, what we're going to see is that Paul reveals a mystery to us. But rather than ruining it, I think it should excite us. Because what we see as Paul reveals this is that we have a privileged place, not only as we've already seen in Ephesians, where we as believers who have come to faith in Christ have been adopted as sons and daughters into the family, but what he reminds us of today is that as those who are believers, we've been given a stewardship, an entrustment to share the good news of the gospel with others. Paul begins in chapter 3, verse 1, with these words, for this reason. Now I want to stop right there. Because as Paul begins this thought, what we suddenly see is that he veers off and he leaves what he was about to say until verse 14. If you look down at verse 14, you see he says there again, for this reason, and then he picks up with what he was originally going to say here in verse 1. You'll recall last week in Ephesians 2, 11 and following, we saw how God had brought Jews and Gentiles together in a new entity called the church. How through the sacrifice of Jesus, we had been reconciled first and foremost to God and then brought together as a new entity, uh, as believers together. And what Paul was about to do here was offer a prayer on behalf of these Christians in the church. But suddenly he veers off. Rather than talk about our position as he prays for us, what he does is he talks about his own position as a prisoner. Now, we're not told what happened. It may be as Paul lifts his pen to write this, the the chains clanged. Remember, he was chained to a, a Roman guard. He was a prisoner there in Rome. It could have been at that very moment the Praetorian guard was switching guards, and they came in and unshackled one, and another one locked himself to Paul. But whatever it is, it reminds Paul of his confinement. Look at how he describes himself in verse 1. He says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, rather than viewing his position as many of us would, as a prisoner uh, put there by Rome, as a prisoner because of the Jews who were angry about the gospel going out, Paul doesn't focus on it in that way. In fact, as Paul talks about being a prisoner all throughout the New Testament, these are the ways he describes himself. Uh, in Philippians 1, 12 through 14, he says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known through the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And, and, and most of all, he says, of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without p- fear. 
See, Paul says, I may not be getting out of jail, but the gospel is getting out. And and as he faces the death penalty, as he's there in Rome facing the prospect of dying, he's not throwing a pity party. Instead, what he's doing is is he says, this is a win-win situation. There in Philippians 1.21, he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, Paul says, from the world's perspective, the worst thing that can happen to me is I die. My life on earth is over. And he says, as a believer, what does that mean for me? Well, it means that I get to go home to glory. I get to be in heaven with the Lord. I get the gift of eternal life that's been promised to me. And he says, now, if God leaves me here, if if I don't lose my life because of this, well, then that's a gain too. I get to continue to share the gospel. The good news continues to go forth. Paul is one whose perspective was like that of a professional photographer. Now, as these baptisms just took place, what you couldn't see, I was, I was backstage watching the baptisms. I love, love seeing people uh, proclaim their faith in Christ. And, and on the other side of that wall, there was, there was a little group of paparazzi, parents with cameras. Uh, we have a professional photographer we have back there, others. So there were several iPhones out, but there were, there were also a couple of really nice professional rigs. And if you've ever seen a picture that a professional photographer takes you know that they know how to center a picture, don't they? They, they know what to focus on. They know what to diminish. Sometimes the, the subject in the picture isn't you know, front and center. It's something that we would normally blur in the background or, or just you know, lose focus on. And as Paul is looking at his, his circumstances, he's not focused on the fact that he's in jail and is facing the death penalty. What he does is he looks at the stuff in the background, the stuff that would be blurry to most, and he says this, this is what God is doing. And I think sometimes in our own lives, we, we miss frame a picture. We see something hard happening in our life and we focus on that. And we forget that God is doing something behind the scenes in the circumstances. Through our suffering, he's refining us. Through some difficult situation, he's receiving glory in a way we may not even see or understand. It's, it's like getting a, a black jagged piece of a puzzle. If you're putting together a puzzle, you know, sometimes as you're sorting them, you get just a solid, dark, black jagged piece, and you go, well, this is kind of ugly, and, you know, this doesn't fit anywhere, and you want to throw it away. But if you do that, you know the picture is incomplete. And, and sometimes God hands us a black jagged piece of a puzzle, and we say it's not very pretty, and it hurts, and we want to remove it, And what God says is there's a place in the picture that that peace goes. Without it, the picture is incomplete. I mean, think of Jesus Christ as he came and he walked the earth with us. And as he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and as he knelt in prayer before the crucifixion, he said, Father, if it's possible, let this pass, this cup pass from me. Jesus knew the picture. He knew that he was going to go to the cross, that he was going to give his life and die a horrible death. And he could have said, I don't like this piece of the picture and I'm going to get rid of it. But he knew without that dark, jagged piece, you see, he could bring into focus what was coming through that crucifixion. Satan and others thought that that his death on the cross was the end of the story that they had won. But as things came into focus three days later, as Christ came out of the tomb alive, as he was resurrected in newness of life and he showed he conquered sin and death, The photographer, God's glasses were put on and we were able to focus on the proper part of the picture and see what looked like a terrible, dark, jagged piece of a puzzle 
was the most important piece of the whole puzzle, as that cross of Christ is what saved us. And as Paul is talking here, he's learned to look at things from God's perspective. He puts on God's glasses. And not only does he see what his imprisonment means, but he's also able to see some of the other things he reveals to us, like what we see in verses 2 through 5. He says, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to, referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the Son of Men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. See, as Paul is writing here, as he says what I've already written about, he's pointing us back to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. There we talked about something called dispensationalism. Do you remember that word? It was the Greek word oikonomia. As we looked at this word, we saw that it means to divide, to apportion, or administer. It spoke of a stewardship, an economy, an administration. This, this is a word that uh, describes the management of a task or the running of a household as a steward or trustee distributed the resources of the master. Now, as we talked about this in chapter 1, I, I gave you the illustration of a sign like this. I said, sometimes you're driving down a road and you see a sign that says, under new management. And when you see that, you, you know what is being advertised is not that the, the dress shop is suddenly a tire store or the bakery has become a bookstore. What they're telling you is the stock on the shelf is the same. You're still going to go into that establishment and receive the same uh, merchandise, but what changes is the way you're treated. What changes is the way that you uh, interact with the, the ownership. You're going to be treated in a different way. And dispensationalism, as we saw, the dispensations speak of the way that God deals with us in this household called the earth. And nothing has changed in terms of the stock. Salvation from the beginning of time has always been through faith in Christ, through the promised Messiah. It's through what Jesus Christ did for us. It's, it's not that God is changing the method of salvation. Remember, all the way back in Genesis, it said Abraham believed in God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Salvation, the Bible tells us, has always been through faith alone, through the grace of God's gift, through the promised Messiah. And as Paul is talking about the way that, that God is at work with us, uh, what he's saying is there's a new way that he's interacting with the Jews and the Gentiles. Last week in Ephesians 2, 11, uh, and following, we talked about the temple. And if you were here, you'll remember where that arrow is pointing. There was something called the balustrade or the soreg. It was a wall that was in the temple. And Gentiles were relegated to that outside far courtyard where Solomon's portico was. They could not come beyond that wall of separation. The Jews, as we saw, could come into the, the next courtyard and the next and the next, depending upon whether you were a woman, a man, a priest, or the high priest. And we saw that as the Gentiles were separated far from God, way outside uh, of the temple, even the Jews themselves were separated from God. Remember, he talked about those who were far away being the uncircumcised, Gentiles. And he said those who were near the circumcision, the Jews. The high priest himself could only go behind that veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple once a year. And he would apply the blood of the sacrifices. Now, the book of Hebrews, remember, told us the blood of bulls and goats. It said it was impossible to remove sin. 
And we saw how when the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, came, he took away the sin of the world, as John one twenty nine tells us. And as his blood was applied, remember the, the covering of the Ark of the Covenant was called the holismos, the satisfaction, the mercy seat. And we saw how when Jesus died for us, he paid that penalty in full. He said in John 19.30, it is finished, paid in full. And what Paul is telling us is the mystery that has been revealed to us is what the Messiah has done as he came. And not only what he did for us, but how the good news of the gospel was now available to Jew and Gentile alike. This was something that there was a change in the administration, the change in how the Jews thought things would be uh, done. Paul says this was the stewardship, the the administration of God's grace. And as it is shared with others in Galatians 2.7, Paul says, I have been, he says, entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcision. That's the Gentiles. Just as Peter has been to the circumcised, the Jews. You see, there are two different groups, but it's the same message. The stock on the shelf is salvation through faith alone through what Christ did for us. And what he says is this has been given to both. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter tells the Jews, And there is salvation, it says, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jews have to receive Jesus as the Messiah. And in Acts 16.30, as Paul was imprisoned in another prison with uh, his traveling companions, remember there was an earthquake. They were brought out uh, by the angel of the Lord, and the Philippian jailer came, and he was going to kill himself because he said the prisoners have all escaped. And Paul said, don't kill yourself. We're all still here. And he asked Paul, sirs, what must I do to be saved in Acts 16.30? And in the very next verse, we find the clearest presentation of what is needed for salvation. It says, uh, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. It is belief alone that saves us. It was the same message to the Gentile jailer. It's the message we saw in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. There it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. Paul is saying the gift of God is through the sacrifice of what his son Jesus did as he went to the cross and he paid our penalty of sin. Remember Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So whether Jew or Gentile, we're saved by faith alone. And the mystery that's being revealed here goes all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 12.3 tells us all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. And so the Jews all along said, well, there's this this gift coming called the Messiah. But what they didn't expect is that the Gentiles would be allowed in the establishment to take the gift off the shelf as well. And this is what Galatians 3.8 tells us. The scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. It's what we see in Ephesians 3, 6. Paul says here, these things have been fulfilled. He says to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, for us today, you're reading this and you're going, and it's not just the students here who have been up all weekend uh, at the discipleship retreat. Some of you are going... Roger, I thought it was going to be a great mystery. 
thought you were going to reveal something big. And you're telling me what I already know. That's, that's kind of disappointing, isn't it? Well, it's only disappointing if you forget everything we just covered. Do you remember what Paul just said? I'm telling you something that has been revealed through the apostles and the prophets that nobody else has ever known. Remember, this book we're reading right now was written in 61 A.D. 61 A.D. in the first century, the Jews and the Gentiles were not living together in harmony. The church was a new entity that was birthed, and there was a battle that was going on within the church. To help you understand a little bit of of what we're looking at, there are some people here today that the slide I'm about to show you is not something you read about in a history book. It's something you read. Some of you here remember this dark chapter in our nation's history when desegregation uh, was the law of the land, when blacks and whites were segregated and were separate. And about 60 years ago in Little Rock, they had to send in the 101st Airborne to literally uh, march into the school with fixed bayonets in order to allow uh, black students to attend school with white students. This was the separation that took place among the races. Now, I'm thankful that the younger generation, a couple of my kids are sitting in this group here, and they've grown up in in a society where they're saying, what's the big deal? Kind of like earlier, you know, blacks and whites, Hispanics, Asians, everybody together in school, what's the big deal? That's that's just the way it is. But that's not the way it is. I lived this history, not as severe as what you see in that picture, But I grew up in Dallas under desegregation. When I was in junior high school, I was put on a bus, and I was sent 40 minutes across town, uh, two busloads of whites sent into a minority school on the other side of Dallas to desegregate. And stepping off those buses, I was yelled at, I was cussed at. We were told to walk in the halls with our backs to the lockers, to uh, not be in the locker rooms alone and all that because of, of the vehement venom that was there because we were the unwelcomed whites in this minority school. And it's why as I look at our nation being torn apart right now by different factions wanting to drive us back to divisions, it grieves me. Because that is not the way that we are to live. As believers, we are to live as those, as we talked about last week, as reconcilers, those who build a bridge. And as we're reading about this in the church, forgetting our history of racism uh, a couple generations ago in, in America, remember what Paul is writing about. As he writes to the church, as he writes to the Ephesians in the first century, do you remember the divisions that were taking place? Go back and read Acts chapter 15. Read Galatians 2. Look at the fights that were taking place in the early church as people had to go through a process of heart change. As the way they were raised, as they said, we used to understand God's revelation in the law this way, being separate from the Gentiles, and now we're brought together. What does this look like? As you read Galatians 2.11, there Paul says, but when Cephas, Cephas is Peter the apostle, Paul is an apostle, and he says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Do you remember from Acts what was happening? The Judaizers, the, the Jews who were in the church who said we have to continue to live under the law were saying we can't let these Gentiles come into the church. They have to become proselytes and be Jews and follow Uh, the law. And and Paul is saying, what are you doing? The gospel of grace is salvation through faith alone, not all the works of the law. 
And there was a throwdown literally among the apostles. These are good and godly men. And they were fighting about it. Do you remember who Barnabas was? Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. He was the guy that was always the bridge builder. And remember what happened to Barnabas in Acts? It says even he was drawn away into the hypocrisy. As people in the church were saying, well, they're in, but they're not. And we got to, even Barnabas. And so as Paul writes these words for us and says, friends, this is, this is amazing. God has created this new entity called the church and he's brought us together and there's unity in the body. This was mind-blowing stuff. So whether we yawn about it and miss what is saying here, I want you to know how exciting this is. And what Paul tells us is, as much as Satan, our enemy, tried to divide and destroy what God was creating, he says he didn't win. Look at verse 6. It says, through Jesus, he made the Gentiles heirs together with Israel, members together of the one body, and shares together in the promises of Christ Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. When you see that word minister there, it's the Greek word diakonos. You've maybe heard the word deacon or deaconess. It speaks of a man or a woman in the church who is a servant leader, a person who's been entrusted with caring for the body, literally waiting on tables. And that's what this word was used. It, was, it spoke of those who served a table or a slave who did the bidding of his master. And as we think about our position in Christ, all of us are called to follow the example of Jesus. We're called to be towel bearers, those who wash the feet of others, those who don't have some high and mighty position, but those who lower ourselves, humble ourselves as Christ did. He told the disciples, you call me Lord and Master, and you're right, for so I am. And if I wash your feet, you're to do the same. And this is what he's calling on us to do, to be those who have received something, not only the example of Christ, but the gift of salvation. And he says it's our job now to share that with others. Now, if you're feeling inadequate to fulfill that role, I want you to think back to what we saw in in Ephesians chapter 1. If you were here there in Ephesians 1, you'll recall we had a message where I used the illustration of uh, being Cadillac Christians or monster ministers instead of bicycle believers. If you weren't here, what I talked about was how God says to us, he doesn't want us to be bicycle believers, where we get on and we pedal as fast as we can and we say everything is dependent upon what I can do alone. Instead, what he says is, go out and get in the car, turn the key and step on the gas and take advantage of the power that I've given to you. And I point that out because here Paul is pointing back to what we saw in Ephesians 1.19 because in Ephesians 3.7 he uses two of the same four Greek words we talked about. The first word that we talked about there was energia from which we get our English word energy. Here it's translated as working. And the other word power comes from dunamis which we, we saw is where we get our English words dynamic and dynamite. And what Paul is saying is, it's not based upon what we do. It's based upon what God does in and through us. Paul knew how inadequate he was to do what God called him to do. Look at how he describes himself in verse 8. He says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Now, in trying to describe what God did here, 
Paul literally takes the Greek language and he bends it to the point of breaking. I know there are some grammarians among us, and so cover your ears here because you're not going to like this. Paul actually makes up a brand new word here that is like fingernails across the chalkboard for somebody who likes proper language. Because when Paul says, I am the lowest of the low, he creates a brand new word that literally is translated as the leaster. He says, I'm the leaster of everybody. And this isn't false humility. This is how Paul understood his position. As you read through the scripture, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles. In 1 Timothy 1, 15, he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. How many of us as Christians have this real sense of who we are before we came to Christ? You see, true humility is not looking down on ourselves and pretending to be humble. True humility is comparing ourselves to something greater, the standard of who Christ is, and recognizing the smallness of our greatness. And as Paul understands who he was, remember our position before we became believers, we saw we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Those of us who are Gentile believers, we saw in Ephesians 2.12, it said we were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And when we truly understand who we are as believers, when we understand the gift of grace and what we've been given, it doesn't puff us up with pride. What it does is it gives us a contrite and broken heart, and we go, wow. Wow that God would let me not only in his family, but that he would then let me be a messenger of the good news of the gospel, that he would entrust that to me. You see, what disqualifies us from true usefulness to God is not a lack of education, ability, expertise, experience. You know what it is? It's pride. It's an inflated view of our own importance or our own righteousness. In James chapter 4, verse 6, we're warned, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jill Briscoe says, A great deal can be done for the kingdom by little servants with little skill and little training if they have big hearts for God. Paul had that perspective. Paul recognized he was the least of the disciples. He said, I'm the guy who persecuted believers. I'm the guy who tried to destroy the church. And God in his grace reached down and he snatched me up and he saved me. And then he sent me to the Gentiles. These people who were seen as outside. In Acts 9.15, Paul says he was God's chosen instrument. He said, I get to carry the message of grace to the Gentiles. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you realize that you're a chosen instrument? Do you know that you are chosen by God? As a believer, not only have you been chosen, as we saw in chapter 1, we've been elected and, and called into the family of God, but he also says we've been chosen as his messengers. It tells us in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Like Paul, none of us are worthy. None of us are worthy to be messengers. None of us are worthy to wear the title of Christian. But as we come to Christ, we've been saved not to sit, but to serve, as we saw last time. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, we're saved by grace through faith alone, not by our works. But remember, right after that in verse 10, in Ephesians 2, 10, it tells us, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. As you look at Ephesians 3, 8, and 9, it goes on to tell us this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. When it says we've been called to preach, it's the Greek word euangelion. Have you ever heard the word evangelism? Evangelism is euangelion. It's not that you have to stand in a pulpit like I'm doing right now and preach. The Bible says, how can somebody hear without a preacher? When we go door to door, when we talk to somebody in the cubicle next to us, or we talk to a friend in the hallway at school, uh, when we talk to a stranger on the street, that is, that is evangelism. That is preaching the good news of the gospel. It's not standing and delivering a sermon per se. And as Paul speaks about the unfathomable riches of Christ, the Greek word he uses here has a literal meaning of not capable of being traced by footprints. Not capable of being traced by footprints. It was used to describe a trail that was so long and and just limitless that there was no end to it. You couldn't figure out where it stopped. It was used to describe uh, the soundings in a sea where they would drop these weighted rocks with ropes to see how deep is the water. And it says it was so deep that it was immeasurable. It was so infinite that you couldn't find the bottom. And as we've been talking about the riches of Christ all throughout Ephesians, as we've been talking about our position as believers, what Paul is saying to us is, do you get it yet, brothers and sisters, that you can't get it all? You can't grasp how infinite, how great the stuff is that God has given to us, our inheritance in the heavenlies, the things God has given to us. He says, no matter how long you are a believer, how deep your walk is with the Lord, no matter how much time you're in his word, he says, just when you think you've got it, he says, you've just scratched the surface. That's how infinite the things are that God has given to us. In verses 10 through 12, he tells us, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. Who's the church? You are. I am. As believers, remember, we are the body of Christ called the church. It's not this building. It's not the building out at 410. It's the body of believers. And he says that known through you, the church, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. That word manifold means variegated. Multicolored. It was used of a tapestry. If you looked at a tapestry that had this, this richness of, of all kinds of different colors, or it was used of a landscape that had, had an immense amount of diversity of color and the beauty that came from it. So as he talks about uh, this, he says the intricacies of God's plan are being brought together. And he says, not only do we marvel at them and go, wow, but you know who else does that? It says here, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you know who that is? That's the angels. You see, we have a a wrong view of the angels. I hear people say, well, when I die, I become an angel. No, we don't, friends. Angels are servants of God. We're higher than that. We become sons and daughters of God. We're in the family. And when it comes to angels, they are not those who are omniscient. Sometimes people think they've got it all figured out. Do you remember who Satan was? Satan was the highest covering cherub, but when he sinned and fell, he's, he's a fallen angel. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't know. Uh, remember, he thought he won when Christ went to the cross. It blew him away when Jesus came out three days later. 
And he said, fail. You didn't win. This was part of the plan. This was what you didn't know. And what it tells us is in the scripture is the angels watch our worship. Are you aware of that? The angels watch what we do Sunday morning. And it says they're leaning over, you know, the the railing of heaven, looking down at us, and they're going, this is mind-blowing. Gabriel, did you know this? Look at this. There's Jews and Gentiles together in the church. Because they're blown away by what the grace of God has done in creating this new entity. They say, we know our God was a God of mercy and grace, but this, this is beyond what we could grasp. When it says it is made known, it's the Greek word photose. This is a word that means to make plain or bring to light. It speaks of a light that pierces the darkness. And as we who are believers have been entrusted with the gospel, I want to give you an illustration of what that looks like. What it says is our life is like this candle. And before we became believers, we were in darkness. We didn't know what was going on. But when we receive uh, God's gift of revelation, we now have the light. And if this room were pitch black and this were the only source of light, you would be amazed at how this one tiny candle could dispel the darkness. If you've ever been in pure darkness and you see a point of light, you know what happens. And as I lit this candle, did you notice something? It doesn't wait until it's burned down halfway before it gives off light, does it? It began giving light immediately. And when we come to faith in Christ, God says, you don't have to wait till you've become a believer for a decade or have a seminary degree or have mastered, you know, the last study in Bible study fellowship or have gone to the the discipleship now weekend, follow me. Y'all already know enough to share the good news. And as those who have been entrusted with the good news, what he says is we're then to take the good news of the gospel and we're to pass it on. And as I lit this other candle, did it, did it diminish this light at all? No. It multiplied it. And when we give away the good news, as we disciple others, as we multiply others, we're not diminishing our own light. We're simply adding to it. And this is the picture that we have been given. He says, we've been given the gift of revelation. We were in darkness, but now we've been brought into the light. And he says, as those who have it, we're to take and pass the light along. If you've been here at Wayside when we do our Christmas Eve candlelight service, you know that at the end we, we all pass the light around and this room lights up. And this Christmas we're going to be doing that at Stone Oak as well and they're going to be having the candlelight service there as well. And as we light our candles, the, the darkness of this room is, is, is dispelled by the light. There are thousands of people who call Wayside Chapel home. So imagine us taking thousands of points of light into the darkness of the world outside of the doors of this church. As we go into our schools, as we go into our workplaces, as we go to the military bases where we serve, as we go and and meet a stranger on the street, what he says is take the light of the revelation you've been given and pass it to others. I hate blowing out the light. But you have the light. And he calls on us to carry it out of here. The Bible tells us in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. 
Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, there is a day that we are going to be home in heaven. And what God says is we don't wait to start shining our light when we get there. We do it now. He says, you've been given the revelation of God's word. You've been given the gift of the spirit that is resident within us. You've been given the grace that comes through the sacrifice of the son of God, Jesus Christ. And he says, take what you have and share it with others. Begin distributing the light, sharing it. It says that as those who have received the good news of the gospel, he says, we have been given bold and confident access to God. As you see there in verse 12, bold and confident access to God. What does that mean? I think the best way I can illustrate this is with the story from the Civil War. During the days of the Civil War, there was a a man who had a son serving. And during one of the battles, this, this young soldier became frightened. And he ran from the front line. And as he was running, he was captured and charged as a deserter. And the penalty for desertion during the war was execution. He would be killed by firing squad. So this man was arrested, he was taken to the military prison, and he was awaiting death. Now the father heard of his son's plight. And he went to Washington, D.C., and he he went to see the president. And he knew the only way his son could be, uh, his life could be spared is if the president gave him a pardon. So he went to the gate of the White House, and he said, I have to see President Lincoln. And the guards there said, you can't come in. And he said, you don't understand, this is a matter of life and death. And he explained what happened. And he said, I have to see the president and I know he'll pardon my son. And the guard said, you can't come in. And the man was desperate. And everybody he tried to talk to, they just walked away. He finally went to an, an adjacent park and he sat down on a bench and he was crying. And there was a little boy from a distance watching this. And, and, and he walked over and he said, mister, what's wrong? And the man looked up and he saw this boy. Well, it was the first person who would listen to him. So he said, well, son, this is, this is a problem. I, my son's going to be killed. And I know if I could just talk to the president, he would, he would understand and he would pardon my son and give him another chance. And, and the little boy said, mister, I want you to come with me. And the man didn't know what to do. He was desperate. So he got up and he followed the boy. Well, the boy walks up to the gates of the White House, and the guards are there, and they immediately pull the rifles apart, and the boy walks through. Now, the man didn't know what to do, and the little boy said, oh, it's okay, he's with me. Come on, mister. And the man walked through the gates of the White House, and he was amazed. They get into the White House, and they're going down a hall, and there was another room at the end. He could see guards in the hallway, and through an open door, he could see President Lincoln is conferring with all of the generals. And as they approached this, the guards, rather than blocking their access, simply stood aside. They stopped the man, and the little boy turns around and says, it's okay, he's with me. And the man walks into the room. Now the generals and cabinet ministers suddenly stopped speaking, and the circle parted, and there was President Lincoln. And the little boy walks up, and he says, Daddy, I want you to meet this man. He has something that he needs your help with. And the man was invited over, and he shared his story, and President Lincoln gave this father a pardon for his son because his own son had advocated for this man. That's what Paul is telling us, friends. He says we have bold and confident access to God. We who could not come into the presence of God before, who were separated from our sin, have been given access to the Father through Jesus Christ, the one who said in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
Do you remember how Christ told us to to pray to God in heaven? He said, when you pray, say, Our Father, Daddy, Abba. He says, we've been given bold and confident access to the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. Not only have we been given access, we've received the pardon for our sin because of the payment that was made by Jesus Christ as he went to the cross and he paid the penalty of death for us. If you're here this morning and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to do so this morning. Jesus invites all who will come to him. He tells us in Romans 5, 8 that he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you're here this morning and you're saying, Roger, my life is too wretched. I've been too bad. God would never have anything to do with me. You're wrong. Jesus died for you just the way you are as a sinner. But he loves you too much to leave you like you are. And once we come to faith in him, we're called to turn from our sins and to walk in newness of life. And as those who have received the light of the gospel, we're then called to share the good news with others. As we end today, I want to end in prayer. I want to give you an opportunity to receive God's great gift of new life. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. But what you do have to do is humble yourself in your heart of hearts. You have to say to God, God, I'm a sinner. I recognize I've failed. I've made mistakes. And, and you say to God, God, thank you for your great gift of new life. I want you to take my sin and remove it, which he's already done on the cross. But you have to accept the great gift of new life. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. If you'd like to receive his great gift of new life, I invite you to pray this prayer with me. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life and done things where I disobeyed you. And because of that, God, I recognize that I owe a penalty. A penalty of death. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you took my place. That you went to the cross and you paid that debt that I owed. As Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And today, Jesus, I'm making you my Lord and Savior. I'm accepting your death in my place. Thank you, God, for the gift of new life. Thank you for making me a part of your family. And Lord God, for all of us who have received your son in the past, We thank you that your grace continues as you've called us to be messengers, to use us to be those who will share the good news of new hope and new life with others. So, Lord, take and use us as we walk out of the doors of Wayside this morning. Would you make us messengers of grace? Would you use us, Lord, to spread the light and dispel the darkness in the dying world in which we live? We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Will you stand please and sing this closing song with us?